nuance. Bitches don't have nuance. Bitches don't have nuance. <laughs> Hi, I'm Akshi. And I'm Shayna. And you're listening to Unpacking the Eerie. A podcast that explores the intersections of our dark and morbid curiosities through a social justice lens. You're welcome. Before we get started today, we wanted to offer our usual content warning. This episode contains mentions of domestic violence, childhood sexual abuse, incest, extreme violence, and animal abuse. Hello! Hello! What's up? It's been a long time. I had, a, I had a break. Yeah, it, it's been a long time since... It's just been us together. Yes. Doing a full episode. That's true. The others yeah. have been collabs. Yeah. Mm. We did Olivia, and then we did um, Bex, which was the three of us, and then we had mini-sodes. So I guess the last one was... Lake Lanier? Lake Lanier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of Lake Lanier, perfect segue. Yes. It was the, I guess, motivation to choose Project South as our most recent ghosty giver beneficiary. If you haven't listened to the episode, you should go check it out because it's fucked up. An important history, I think. But it is very traumatizing, so be in, the re- be in the space for it. So I'll open it with one of the quotes that I pulled from one of the articles I I really pulled from for that episode. Um, it was written by Bilal Morris, and she says, There's a city buried under Lake Lanier, Georgia's biggest lake, and submerged with it is a secret, an American horror story filled with terror, death, genocide, and ghosts. So in December, we took you to Lake Lanier, a haunting vacation destination with a racist and gruesome past. The waters of Lake Lanier submerge a small rural town called Oscarville a place that was once home to 1,100 Black families. We talked about how the town saw years of white terror and genocide before it was flooded and turned into a man-made lake. Originally named after a Confederate soldier, Lake Lanier was designed to support water supply and hydroelectric power for neighboring white communities, which, if you ask us, is a hideous metaphor for white supremacy and the erasure of American violence. We recognize these ugly truths and uplift the legacy of community care and Black-led organizing power in Georgia and beyond. So thanks to support from our Ghosty Giver patrons, we were able to donate $145 to Project South, which is a Georgia-based racial justice organization rooted in the legacy of the Southern Freedom Movement. I'll read you their mission statement. Project South was founded as an in- as the Institute to Eliminate Poverty and Genocide in 1986. They say our work is rooted in the legacy of the Southern Freedom Movement and our mission of cultivating strong social movements in the South powerful enough to contend with some of the most pressing and complicated social, economic, and political problems we face today. There are three strategic directions that guide Project South's work are neighborhood organizing to grow community power, movement organizing to grow regional power, and movement support to grow grassroots leadership. So thank you so much to the folks who donate in the Ghosty Giver tier. Um, you allow us to like really support the causes that are tied to the stories that we're talking about. Um, yeah. So that's that. Cool. Um, <laughs> announcement. Big announcement. We got a website. Yeah. Finally. Yay. Created by... Yours truly, me and Shayna. Yeah, it's cute. Yeah. Check it out. 
Give us your thoughts. Be part of the analytics. (laughs) (laughs) We can see where you're pinging from. We know your IP address. That's really creepy. Did you see that? I did see that. Mm. And also, soon there will be stuff that you can purchase on said website. Yes, merch. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe by the time this episode comes out, it's there. So check it out. Yes. You can also go and see a categorized list of our episodes. So Mm -hmm. if there are particular categories that you're more drawn to, they're separated out into those. Um, And also, if you have any feedback, we'd love it. And there's a contact page on the website. So unpackingtheerie.com is where you go. Check it out. (sighs) Okay. (sighs) (laughs) We were going to... We were going to try to do something light, lighter because of Lake Lanier and like blah, 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 everything that comes after that. And then we just oh, utterly failed, I think. Yeah, so. it's it's um, it's fucked up. Uh, you know, I think when we say we want to like take a break from the heavier stuff, it means that there's all these layers of emotional, intellectual energy that go into unraveling the way that racism mm-hmm. intersects with, like, all the bullshit mm-hmm. that culminates into the stories we cover. And so there's less of that in here, but it yeah. is nevertheless very fucked up and probably triggering um, for folks. So we'll try to make sure to yeah. warn you before. Yeah. Um, it is a gruesome story, and it is, like... A story that starts with a lot of trauma. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. that being said, so today we're going to be talking about the very, like the first and I think only woman to be given a life sentence without parole in Australia. Uh, and there's some cannibalism in here, so be wary of that. I'm going to pass it to Akshi to get us started yeah. on where the fuck this happened. So, so this happened in a little, little town in New South Wales, Australia, called Aberdeen. Today, it's a small town that's between these two other towns called Muswell Brook and Scone, which are relevant later, which is why I'm saying that. And Daring Wheat. Cattle and sheep are integral parts of their local economy, which makes sense because the history of the town is a lot of stuff related to production, that kind of thing. So Aberdeen, the land, is originally home of the Wanarua Aboriginal people, and they're known for their strong ties of kinship, and they survived in small family groups and clans. Classic. In 1828, colonizer Thomas Potter McQueen was, quote, granted 10,000 acres between Scone and Muswellbrook, and he named it Aberdeen after his friend, the fourth Earl of Aberdeen. So creative. So he was still living in England at this time, but then his financial situation declined and then he moved to Australia. And then this town just kind of became like an industrial town because of that. In 1840, there was a steam-driven mill that was there. And then in 1891, the Australian Chilling and Freezing Company was established in Aberdeen. 
A year later was when the first cargo of sheep and lamb arrived at Aberdeen to be processed. So this factory was shut down for two years in the late 1890s because of typhoid. And then it reopened and then closed due to low supply. And then in 1940s, they started to process beef, rabbits, pigs, and even butter. In 1981, 20 abattoirs, so that's what these are called. They're like the equivalent. Are they like slaughterhouses? Slaughterhouses, yes. It's like the Australian word for a slaughterhouse. Abattoir. Abattoir. So there's a lot of these, I guess. sophisticated. I know. It's not slaughterhouse. There's a lot of them in New South Wales. And in 1981, like something happened and 20 of them closed and like 4,000 jobs were lost across New South Wales. So just like a huge part of their economy. And then this company in 1984 came in called Elders IXL. And then they established in 1984 the Aberdeen Beef Company, where they processed meat for export and also domestically. In 1999, the facility closed and 400 people lost their jobs. Uh, At the time, Mm -hmm. the town's population was 1,700 and one in four people worked at Aberdeen Beef Company from this town. And they cited stock shortages as the reason why it was closed. Um, Yeah, so basically just like super small town. A lot of uh, people work at local slaughterhouse. A lot of everyone knows each other because it's tiny, Mm -hmm. tiny, tiny. Um, Yeah, a lot of history of just like working in factories, doing industrial labor. So that's Aberdeen. Why are we talking about Aberdeen? Because (laughs) Catherine is from there. Yeah. This is the town of Aberdeen, and this is where a woman named Catherine Knight lived. This is the woman who now is in a prison for the rest of her life without parole. So, you know, like, what the fuck's going on with Catherine? I also think context for the town is, like, important because... Everyone, or when I was learning about it, they were talking about how um, there's, like, a lot of socioeconomic, like, Mm -hmm. challenges. Like, people are not – people are not doing well. No. Um, And also, like, uh, they don't have, like, a lot of access to education. Resources are low. And also, like, there's, like, higher rates of domestic violence. And so I wonder what all of this – how all of this plays into the way that she functioned and was enabled and created the conditions for her to like her story to yeah. exist. Yeah. Oh, Mocha's snoring. <laughs> Mocha's my cat and he's really old and very sweet, but he does snore. So you might hear some of that a little squeaky boy. Oh my God. So, <laughs> so here we have the, the the context of Aberdeen, where a ton of people work at the abattoir. And Catherine, actually, was one of those people. Um, she left school at the age of 15 without knowing how to read or write. And for a little while worked at, as a cutter in a clothing factory. But her dream, her aspiration, was to work at the abattoir. She described it as her dream job because it was also like kind of a family. Her dad used to work there. But first, her job involved cleaning congealed marrow and blood out of carcasses and cutting animals into smaller pieces. But then she was later uh, promoted to boning. And she was at this point given her own set of knives. It's said that she hung these knives over her bed and 
is quoted saying they would be handy if I needed them. Always be handy. A habit of the hanging over her bed, that habit she's like continued until her incarceration everywhere she lived. She has her little knives above her bed. At this point, she's at the abattoir and she meets David Kellett. So this starts like this string of like really fucked up relationships. Uh, David Kellett worked at the butcher shop. They said the butcher shop. It's the abattoir, right? Yeah. Yeah. The internet described him as an alcoholic who was prone to fist fights. I guess one time at the towards the beginning of Catherine and David's relationship. I also never got information about how the relationships evolved, right? Like in the Lorena episode, we really get to see like how um the relationship was started off really like soft and sweet yeah. and then slowly devo- devolved mm. into this like really violent, yeah, scary relationship. I have no information about how the courting process happened here. I am completely unsure about how Catherine's getting into these relationships. Yeah, there is no information really on that, which is maybe just because she's never shared that with anyone. I, yeah, I guess so. And I'm just like, if she's out here, she's out here being like, I love slaughtering cows. Yeah, yeah. Like, I was listening to these, like... I was watching this documentary, and this was literally something that she said. Like, I I love slaughtering cows. She took joy in it, which is a total red flag. Yeah. Joy in killing animals. Mm -hmm. This woman is full of red flags, and no one ever – everyone just, like – Oh, my gosh. Enables her. Okay, anyways. So, one time, I guess, Catherine joined in on one of his, like, drunken brawls. He was prone to, like, drunken brawls at pubs. Um, and that was like an indicator to him that she, he was like, oh, this is a, she's very strong. Um, which makes sense because she's like throwing around cows all day. And, um, this was like the beginning of noting or noticing that he was like slowly becoming like the submissive party in the dynamic in which he assumed he would have like, mm. you know, mm. where like you would assume that the dynamic would be shifted. And in 1974, she convinces David to marry her. Her mom even warns that she has a temper, says that she has a screw loose somewhere. The The exact quote is, the old girl said to me, watch out. David said this, apparently. The old girl said to me, watch out. I hate that old that, girl. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, yeah. Uh, you better watch this one or she'll fucking kill you. Stir her up in the wrong way or do her do the wrong thing and you're fucked. Don't ever think of playing up on her. She'll fucking kill you. And that was her mother talking. She told me she's got a, something loose, a screw loose somewhere. So, like, all right. So, her mom. That's her mom. Barbara. Barbara. I, yeah. fe- I have a feeling we're going to learn about Barb. Barbara. If it's not obvious, this is also, like, a very white conservative town. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so a lot of the information that I'm pulling from, like, any of the coverage is, like, coverage from, like, people who are surrounding the town, the mm-hmm. journalists who are covering the stories yeah. in the town. Yeah. So we're having to distill this information through that lens. Yeah. I think that's important to note. Yes. For sure. So either way, 1974, she convinces David to marry her. Um, and then their wedding night, violence escalates. They had sex three times. And... Uh, when he couldn't pull through a fourth time, she, like, strangles him in his sleep. What the heck? And he manages to fight her off. It's terrifying. So, you know, 
they move on from that and they stay together for 10 years. Yeah. Dissociate. I guess so. I'm just like, but I'm also like how much, um, like if you're coming into a conservative place with really traditional Mm. gender norms, like how much of this is like toxic masculinity and being like, Oh, I have to stay. I, I'm, I am not the subject of abuse. That will not be happening. Mm. That is not my situation. Yeah. We're just going to keep it going. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And normally I would like take all these stories with a grain of salt, but this woman is like literally so wild. I'm just like, wow, she's the aggressor. Okay. So throughout the 10 years, people say that she was known to attack him with frying pans, burn his clothing, threaten him with knives, which she had mounted above her bed. Yeah, her knives. Her knives. Promised knives. Precious knives. Mm-hmm. One time, in fear for his life, Kellett fled before collapsing in a neighbor's house, and he was later treated for a badly fractured skull. Police wanted to charge oh her, but God. Knight was now on her best behavior, quote-unquote, and talked Kellett into dropping the charges. Wow. Uh, yes. So, in May 1976, this is two years after, you know, they get married. Shortly after the birth of their first child, Melissa Ann, David left her for another woman and moved to Queensland. You can imagine that did not go well. <laughs> no. No. So this the same week she was admitted to St. Elmo's Hospital after witnesses saw her violently pushing and swinging her second child in a stroller down a busy street. Oh my god. What the heck, lady? Yeah. Um she just she stayed there for several weeks and they were like she has postpartum depression. Which I'm just like, um, the way that she's enabled throughout this whole story, I feel like really echoes this like idea of um, the the inherent innocence of white womanhood mm-hmm. and like the refusal to believe that mm-hmm. she could be embodying such like yeah you know like that she could be dangerous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. It's like kind of like. They're like, the oh. explanations that they give whenever there's like a mass shooter. Yeah. Um, I'm he just was like, depressed. He was lonely. What postpartum depression? I want to say also, like, I think that that gets used a lot in cases where mothers have killed their children and they're like, mm. ooh, postpartum depression. And like, I want to spend some time talking about postpartum depression because, like, sure, that could be like a part of it, but also, like, postpartum depression is extremely common. And, like, undertreated. And so, like, birthing people are really left with very little to no support because people don't know how to address it and they don't know how to expect it or or support people who are going through that. So, according to the DSM-5, which has its issues which is a manual used to diagnose mental disorders. Postpartum depression is a form of major depression that begins within four weeks after delivery. Postpartum depression is linked to chemical, social, and psychological changes that happen when having a baby. And so the chemical changes involve a rapid drop in hormones after delivery, Hmm. which makes a lot of sense when my hormones are rapidly anywhere. My body's like, what the actual fuck is going on? The actual link between this drop and depression is not clear. They just know that it happens. They know that levels of estrogen and progesterone, the reproductive hormones, increase tenfold during pregnancy, and then they drop sharply after delivery. So by day three after someone gives birth, 
the levels of these hormones drop back to what they were before pregnancy, which is really dysregulating. And so, like, for Catherine's case, she already had these tendencies to be abusive. And when she couldn't abuse the person that she was dating, she was abusing her children after he left. So, like, there's this pattern of, like, someone always has to pay for my hurt, even if the hurt is, like, kind of, like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, like, for Catherine's case... We can expect postpartum depression to happen, and it just only exacerbates her existing behavior. The website that I'm pulling this from continues to say, most new mothers experience the baby blues, quote-unquote, after delivery. About one in every ten of these birthing people will develop a more severe and longer-lasting depression after delivery, and about one in 1,000 develop a more serious condition called postpartum psychosis, which psychosis, yeah, which is wild, but I wonder if it's, like, if you have, like, a genetic predisposition towards, like, schizophrenia, that that is likely to happen after you give birth to a child, like, to onset. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's, like, whatever is, like, really dysregulating to your nervous system sometimes triggers it, right? Yeah, and yeah. And that huge of a drop in hormones. Yeah, and... It, aren't there postnatal vitamins? I think there are. Oh, there are? I think so. Okay. I just don't think be. that they address these the severe ups yeah, and downs of sure. hormones. Yeah. So, I don't know. I'm also thinking about, like, the term psychosis and how that's yeah. really stigmatized mm-hmm. and how people always tie psychosis with something violent. And, like, that's not true either. Yeah. yeah. And it's also a way to pathologize um, people's spiritual beliefs sometimes. So. Mm. Yeah. hmm Yep. Yes. You know, in the witch... Which one? Yeah. Everything comes down to capitalism, colonialism. Yeah, yeah. We were talking about that a bit. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know. And, like, I'm just, like, just, again, with Catherine being Catherine, and if maybe psychosis was part of that picture also, I'm just, like, mm-hmm. danger. How come nobody is, like, looking out for this? And also, I think, I, I, I remember watching this documentary um, where they, like, had interviewed like new mothers who did have postpartum depression and like experienced postpartum psychosis and they did develop like these like i don't feel connected to my child yeah, and some people yeah. were like i wanted to harm my child and i don't know why yeah. but like the fear of being um like institutionalized or like preemptively criminalized for those mm. thoughts and behaviors kept them from seeking support yeah. and so i'm just wondering I don't know. I'm just throwing out there that there's just, like, not enough information, not enough support, and people are just kind of left to deal with their really shitty... Massive hormonal changes. Yeah, after a really, like... Traumatic. Yeah. Birth is traumatic for everyone, you know. It's the trauma that your body goes through. That's true. And then this, like, thing that was, like, living inside of you, and you got, like... There's just a lot yeah. happening there. Like, yeah. why do we not have more reverence for that? We're just yeah. gonna be like, "There's a hospital bill you have to pay." Yeah, good day. Come back to work. And I really four don't months. believe that that should even be weeks. happening in a hospital. Like, you know. Yes, I think that there should be a different setting for that. I agree. Same with death. Same with death. Yeah, and apparently, actually, like research shows that one in one in ten they said new fathers get depression during the year their child is born, which I imagine that that's like the cohort 
um, that they're te- like testing from, but like no one ever talks about how like the other parties and like so um some symptoms of postpartum depression can be hard to detect, but here are some that they offer: trouble sleeping, appetite changing, appetite changes, severe fatigue, lower libido, frequent mood changes. And with postpartum depression, these come along with other symptoms of major depression, which aren't typical after childbirth, but they may include being uninterested in your baby or feeling like you're not bonding with them, crying all the time, often for no reason, depressed mood, severe anger and crankiness, loss of pleasure, feelings of worthlessness, hopelessness and helplessness, thoughts of death or suicide, thoughts of hurting someone else, trouble concentrating or making a decision. So... No, I don't want to birth my own children, but this is making me not want to do that even more than I already don't. (laughs) That's fair. I already have a tendency towards depression, so. Wild. Yeah, it's scary. Mm -hmm. But anyways, I just wanted to point out that, like, the way that they use this kind of connotates her behavior with, like, mental illness, which can show up in a lot of different ways and doesn't necessarily suggest that someone's going to be violent Mm -hmm. to their children or to other people. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, like, if that's something you're experiencing, you're really not alone. So, yeah, I support you in getting support, you know? Um, Okay, so Catherine is released from the psychiatric hospital and immediately after, she's placed her two-month-old, Melissa, on a railway line shortly before the train Dude. was due. And then stole an axe and then went to town and threatened to kill several people. Wow. I mean, this is in the 70s. Yeah. And the incident that we're covering really happened in 2000. So this bitch is really wandering around wild yeah. as fuck and nobody is like... I'm like, oh my gosh. gosh. I mean, her mom is just like willy nilly, like, this bitch is gonna kill kill you. you. And like, it's just, you know? Yeah. Who's stepping in? Nobody. Nobody is stepping in. But also, we talked about how this is a place with like minimal resource. Mm -hmm. So it's like, "Mm." minimal resource or also like, not my problem kind of thing. Like, I don't want to get involved. Like, this person's clearly wild, but I'm gonna live my life. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Some dude uh, known in the district as Old Ted was foraging near the railway line and was the only reason the baby was rescued just minutes before the train passed. And so Catherine was arrested again and taken to St. Elmo's Hospital, but apparently she quote-unquote recovered and signed herself out the following day. I don't even know what that means. Like, who's watching out for these children? Children. These poor babies. Yeah. She has a bunch of children. Yeah. I'm like, where are they? Are they okay? No. I hope you're okay. <laughs> please don't listen to this episode. No, please turn it off. Uh, unnecessary re-traumatization. Mm-hmm. Or I don't know, do what you want. Yeah, do what you want. But, you know, take care of yourself. I like how we're like, they're listening. Yeah. yeah. It's what freaked me out and was like, what if the Setagaya murders? Oh, I mean, I, t- I have thought that before, I've thought too. that, too. And I just kept it in my brain yeah, and put scary. it away and it brought it forward again. Ugh, I'm scared. I don't like thinking about him. No. Sorry. Sorry about it. It's okay. I've already had that thought before, so it's not a new one. Bro. Anyways. Anyways. Okay. So, <laughs> a few days later... 
She wastes no time. A few days later, Catherine slashed the face of a woman <gasps> with one of her knives, oh her damn knives, someone take her damn knives, and demanded she drive her to Queensland to find David, who had left, you know, with a, another mm-hmm, woman. Mm-hmm. The woman escaped after they stopped at a service station, but by the time the police arrived, Knight had taken the, a little boy hostage and was threatening him with a knife. What in the world? This yes. What in the world? She was disarmed when a poli- when police attacked her with brooms. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. With brooms. Okay. Okay. I mean, I don't think they have guns. Guns, yeah. Yeah. So brooms. brooms so brooms. You know, they're working with what they got. Mm-hmm. Brooms. Mm-hmm. It's funny. It's it's weirdly humorous. It's a it's a distressing Im- like yeah. circumstance, but yeah. that image is yeah a little comical. Yeah. It would be comical if it wasn't so fucked up. Yes, like many things. Mm-hmm. So she was admitted to a different psychiatric hospital, Morissette Psychiatric Hospital, and there she told nurses that she planned to kill a mechanic who fixed David's car because it made it possible for him to leave her. Wow. Mm-hmm. So everyone, She's every, trying to blame everyone. Everyone's responsible for her yeah. pain. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and surprise, surprise, she was released a few months later. She's actively saying, "I'm going to kill these people," and they're yeah. just like, "Bye, Kay. cool, okay, See you later." <sighs> so she was released on the 9th of August in 1976 into the care of her mother-in-law, along with David. Because David came back after oh he heard about his plan to, like, kill people. I think he wanted to, like, uh, de-escalate yeah, her. Yeah, She was like, I don't... He was like, I don't want to be the reason people, people died. dying. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then they moved to Woodridge, a suburb of Brisbane. Or Brisbane? Brisbane? Mm-hmm. A suburb of Brisbane. Uh, <laughs> where she obtained a job at the Dinmore Meatworks in nearby Ipswich. So she's still out here dealing with meat. She got to. She loves her knives. It's her thing. On March 6, 1980, they had another daughter named Natasha Marie. They're just popping out babies. In 1984, Knight left David and moved in, first with her parents in Aberdeen, and then rented a house in nearby Muswellbrook. These names. Yep. Although she returned to work at the abattoir, she injured her back the following year and went on disability pension. Mm. And when she no longer had to... She went on disability pension and the government gave her a housing commission house in Aberdeen. So she's back Mm. in Aberdeen. Mm -mm. Before we move forward, we always ask the question, like, why are you like this, Catherine? What happened to you? So Akshi has a lot of info about that. It's going to be... I do. You're all going to feel very confused. Confused? On your feelings. No, just like have confusing feelings. Oh, that's fair. Yeah. Uh, ambivalent feelings. Just uh, a content warning. Domestic violence. Child sexual abuse and incest. So... Fuck. Can't deal with that. Maybe just don't listen. Or- I'm going to try to not go really specifically into things and just talk about them overarchingly. But first, I'm going to talk about Barbara. Who's Barbara? I was just hearing you talk about her, and I'm like, you're fucked up, too. 
That's why she's like this. Mm, it's like that. It's like that meme that uh, Devil Wears Prada meme. Yeah. Where she's like, "Oh, I see. You think this has nothing to do with yeah, you?" Yep. Yep. Mm. Um. So Barbara was born in Muswellbrook. Her to a poor family. Her dad left when she was young, and she was raised in a small, crowded house with extended family members. A quote from one of her other kids, not Catherine, about. Barbara was. She never loved or cuddled or nursed. Mom was busy and there was no time or room for affection or love. There were rumors that Barbara may have been sexually abused by relatives when she was a child. And she was at one point like in a home for girls and people in the town described her as high strung and foul mouthed. Um, She often told her kids that there was madness running through the female side of her family. And then also, classic white person, sometimes told her family that she was descended from a Maori princess. Bye. So there's a quote from uh, one of her kids. When she was feeling good, we were aboriginal. She knew all along. She just didn't say there was a lot of racism in those days. It was a secret. Um... So there's just, like, so much going on there. Why is that a thing? Like, I don't want to say, like, it's impossible, but yeah, white people yeah. really do have this thing where they're like, I'm part Cherokee. Yeah. Specifically Cherokee. Yeah. And then they, like, have this ongoing story in their families about how they were on the Trail of Tears. Yep. And that, like, ends up not being true. I'm yeah. just like, what is yeah, up and in with Australia, that it's weird... always, like, Maori. It's just a weird lie. Like, what yeah. are you trying to hide from? And, like, what are you... What's the reason? What is the reason? You're just trying to distance yourself from the legacy of white violence, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, um, so this, a lot of what I'm pulling right now is from this book about Catherine called Bloodstain by Peter Lalore, which I have thoughts about, which I'll get into later. But um, in in the book, he also says that, like, it's still kind of like that today in Aberdeen, where people might be like, oh, so-and-so has Aboriginal blood. Okay. So anyway, Barbara moved to Aberdeen in the 1940s and married Jack Rowan. Um, And he worked at the abattoir and was an alcoholic. They had four boys in the first 10 years of marriage. um, And they lived like pretty close to the abattoir in a, in a little cottage. Um, So tiny cottage, four boys right next to the abattoir. This is, this is Barbara. Sounds terrible already. Yep. When her youngest children were a few months old, slash like a year old, she had an affair with a co-worker of her husband, Mm. Ken Knight. Mm. It was a huge scandal because it was like the 50s and it's a really small community. Mm -hmm. And so when like people found out about it, they were up in arms. Because of that, Barbara and Ken moved to Moray. um, And two of her sons stayed with their dad and two of them went to stay with an aunt. So she like wasn't with her kids anymore. Mm-hmm. So after that, she's like having more kids. First, she had a boy um, that was named after Ken less than a year uh, after another boy. Um, then she has twins. One of whom is Catherine Marie Knight on born October 24th, a Scorpio. 1955. Yeah. Yeah. She doesn't forget. No. Mm. Uh, And then she had one more kid after that. Pretty sure. 
Okay. You're trying to look up her chart? Yeah. L-O-L. Mm-hmm. So, in 1957, um, her first husband, Jack Rowan, died, and her two older sons came to live with her and Ken. So, now she had five kids living with her, and two more that were living at her relative's house. Two older boys came to live with her and Ken, and then, because she had had uh, four more kids in that in-between time... Um, she had eight kids and her kids who had been living in Sydney with their aunt also came to, to stay at certain points of time. So Ken and Barbara were known to be very strict and having nasty tempers. Mm. Um, Ken was also an alcoholic and he was physically, emotionally, verbally, and sexually abusive towards Barbara. Mm. And in the book, it says that she fought back. And the quote is, she gave back almost as good as she got. I really hate how this person writes. Like, there's more shit about, like, how this person writes that I really, really fucking hate. But I'm like, what the heck? Um, But, like, a lot of this happened in front of the kids. Like, they didn't care, you know. Sure. So they were witnesses to this. Um, Barbara was raped many times a day and often told um, her daughters intimate details of this and how she hated sex and men no yeah no yep um (sighs) ah man so Catherine especially craved her mother's affection and complained often that she didn't get it and complained that her sister was like the favorite um and Catherine says that she doesn't remember her parents ever saying that they loved her Mm. um so a lot of attachment shit going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, she used to get beat by both her parents really often. She says that she can't re- remember them that well. I'm not going to go into specifics about that. Um, but other family members would say about Catherine that she would get depressed and get really anxious, um, but that she also had a vicious temper and often had to be like, restrained or held back when she lost her cool Mm -hmm. um but then at other points of time she and her sister so other times they were like playful together you know Mm -hmm. they were very close um Mm. they they stuck together um okay so Catherine says that until from like around the age of three till the age of 11, she was sexually assaulted by different members of her family, mm. um, which has been confirmed by other members of the family as well. The tone which which this is written in the book is so gaslighting and victim blaming. Like, yes, she's like a fucked up person, but that doesn't like give you like free reign to be like, Oh, like she's making all of that stuff up. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So one of the quotes from the book says, although everything she told the psychiatrist in this period has been seen as self-serving, others confirm elements of what she says. I'm like, yeah, so other people are saying that it happened. And it also explains her... Her behavior. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's really common that abusive people will lean on their traumatic yeah. past to justify True. their behavior. True. Um, but I think it's important to acknowledge that people don't exist in a vacuum and that these yeah, behaviors and there's have roots. happening there. You yeah. You know, like, it's true. And also, she's, like, really fucked up and not very few survivors of uh, abuse end up being as violent as she was so 
Right, right. It's like many things can be true mm-hmm. at the same time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that they say, which I'm just like, this is just wrong, is that, like, the psychiatrist that I guess, like, um, evaluated her um, later on um, claimed that she had little memory of her childhood and found it difficult to discuss. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, remembers that there was a lot of physical violence and sexual violence in it. Mm-hmm. And she used to also wet the bed until she was 11, which is around the time that she said that that abuse, mm. sexual abuse stopped, which is a common That's, thing that happens when, yeah. when children are being sexually abused. So going back to this, what the psychiatrist said, he said that he doubts that this is true because she can't remember the details. And he believes that victims of sexual assault rarely suffer suppressed memory. And I was like, dude, what the fuck are you talking about? What is he talking about? He's a psychiatrist. Psychiatrists don't know shit sometimes. Yeah. I'm like, that is such a common response to trauma. Yeah. Just, like, That's such loss. a common... I'm like, what are you even saying that's, like, not it's a, true? It's a protective thing. Yeah. Your brain says, no. Nope. Some, some people have some responses. Other people have other responses, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um. Anyway, so that... I was just like, what the heck is going on in this book? One thing that's, I guess, kind of, like, sweet is... um. When she was younger, she was afraid of the dark and kept a doll with her that protected her. And she said, one doll used to protect me. I was scared at night. They wouldn't let me have the light on. I thought there was something wrong with me. And that all boils down to my my brothers doing shit. Mm. I played with my dolls and things that I like a lot. Um, I had one doll I carried everywhere with me. It used to protect me. It was like gold to me. It meant more to me than anything in the world, I suppose. Um, so there was that. Mm. I found her chart. Oh. So apparently since she was born in Australia, she's actually a Libra. Oh. And she's a Venus in Scorpio. Oh, man. Why do I share things with this? I also have my Mercury in Libra. <laughs> my moon's in Aquarius. Interesting. Look at this mm-hmm. Scorpio Saturn. Mm-hmm. Saturn return must have been gnarly. Yeah. Um, interesting. You know... My chart's very similar to Richard Ramirez, so... So, okay. Here we are. Here we are. (laughs) So, anyways, that, I think, paints a little picture of Catherine's childhood. I'm going to say a little bit more about it, but when you were talking, I was like, oh, this is another recipe for disaster situation, Mm -hmm. you know? Like, I just wonder what's in their family's genetics as well, and... Like, what are all the things that are contributing to, like, this being her path of trauma response? Right. Yeah, what is the thing? Because, like, I was talking about this earlier, and I feel like there's something about, like, white people. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Like, when you look at, like, the cluster of serial killers and the cluster of people who are, like, you know, at the top of whatever... For example, she was, like, the first woman, Mm -hmm, you know? They're always white people, and I'm just, like, I'm thinking about these serial killers, and they have these, like, I mean, they're not great lives, but oftentimes they're not, like, un... A lot of people experience that and Mm -hmm. don't go that way, so, like, what is it about what's in your genes already that makes trauma unbearable and switches you into this person who feels like you need to dominate and destroy other people? Yeah, what I was hearing uh, a lot when you were talking and sharing the stories about uh, 
her first husband, yeah, um, was very much like, oh, she's like really just trying to regain control, like in such an aggressive, absolutely way. She's like fight response that times thousand, yes. infinity, and a lot of her abuse is sexual nature, which mm-hmm. makes mm-hmm. like yeah. the connection. I yep. see the connection there. So in 1969, Catherine's uncle, who was Ken, her dad's brother, the only person she was close to other than her sister and the family, died by suicide. Mm. She later said that she wished it had been her dad because she loved Oscar more. And so the family wasn't living in Aberdeen at this point. They moved back um, after that happened. Um, So she was in school until she was 15, and she was known at school for her sudden and violent temper. Not just her, but also her sister. They were both known for that. Mm -hmm. Both known for doing anything to get attention, either Mm -hmm. good or bad, because they were very neglected at home. So, like, school was a place where they were, like, trying to get attention and their, like, needs met. So if there was a fight in the playground, it was usually them two. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was more likely to be Catherine. And she would fight with anyone. She wouldn't go, like, looking for fights. But once it started, she would, like, not stop. You know, she wouldn't be able to end it. Yeah. Other kids at school were scared of them because of how, like, aggressively they fought with each other. That makes sense. Yeah. And um, people said that Catherine never seemed happy and always had, like, a scary frown on her face. So one, one of her classmates remembers that they, the sisters, were arguing over who would push their bicycle and then they just like started throwing punches at each other they were always together because they didn't have a lot of friends but they also like fought with each other a lot but they were also really close Mm. so complicated but if like uh, anyone tried to fight Catherine or anyone tried to fight her sister the other person would always join to help they were like aligned but then also aggressively fighting with each other yeah she once assaulted a boy and then once injured a teacher and the teacher said that, uh, sorry, she was injured by a teacher and the teacher said that she was acting in self-defense mm. to Catherine. Weirdly, there was also a quote that said that when she was not in a rage, she was a model student and often earned rewards for her good behavior. Which I'm like, how is she earning rewards for her good behavior if she's like this the majority of the time? <laughs> This is just, like, a recipe for so much bullshit. Yep. You know, like, yep. the, the duality of punishment and um, coddling, you know? Like, that. Mm-hmm. The those things existing at the same time is just, like, I feel like a recipe to socialize someone to be really horrible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. So, clearly, Catherine had an extremely traumatic childhood. Her mom had a traumatic childhood. It's just passing on, passing on. And like we've said before, like, yes, trauma can explain people's fucked up behavior, but not everyone who goes through childhood trauma ends up causing harm like this. And I just wanted to kind of look into like the impact of like exposure to domestic violence on children and young people. Um, And also the long-term consequences of people who have been sexually abused as children and so i looked in a few research studies and there was clear evidence that showed that domestic violence and child sexual abuse are often co-occurring and often there's association between the abuse of a mother and a sexual abuse of a child Mm -hmm. 
what I was mentioning before about like a lot of attachment shit's going on, right? So like when you're a child, pretty much until you're like age 21, like your brain's developing. And one of a very key developmental thing that we need as humans who are social bonding mammals is like a secure base in a caregiver. So because we're not able to take care of our own like survival needs, we need to trust that our primary caregiver is going to respond in our times of need. And obviously, both her parents were not were not there. And so growing up in an abusive household can really, really like fuck up the de- developmental progress of children. And it always carries into adulthood and contributes to the cycle of, uh, cycle of violence continuing a lot of the time. So often, like children who gl- grow up in households like this end up having a disorganized attachment. I'm not even going to go into that with Catherine because she has a lot of other shit going on. <laughs> but this uh, researcher says that such attachments result in the infant being chronically overwhelmed. And if uninterrupted, this pattern could have devastating developmental consequences for the child underpinning much of the intergenerational cycle of domestic violence. Mm. Um, so it also kind of matters like the age of exposure. And so like if children are really young, um, it's associated with just like PTSD, social problems, difficult, sometimes difficulty developing empathy as well, which is present with her. But this research study also set like says it cautions that there is rarely a direct causal pathway leading to a particular outcome and that children are not passive participants, but are active in constructing their own social world. One other study that I found was they looked at 130 women, most of them were white, uh, middle class, and they had experiences of like witnessing violence between their parents as children. And they like measured it in terms of like moderate and severe. I don't know how they separated that, Mm. but they found that the people who had experienced more severe violence had more violence in their dating relationships both towards their partner and from their partner but it wasn't clear whether the towards their partner was like Mm self-defense greater number of antisocial behaviors which was like criminal behaviors truancy i'm like what the heck what does that mean not going to school school? yeah arrests and like physical fights but also more depression higher trauma symptoms Yeah, and the results of the study also found associations between childhood sexual abuse and antisocial behaviors in specifically women. Survivors of childhood sexual abuse are often more vulnerable to physical and sexual abuse as an adult and often have a poor quality of relationships. But findings show that there is no difference in the ability to form close friendships or receive emotional support from friends or towards friends. Interesting. Yeah. So there's a clear distinction between like relationships that include a sexual component to it versus yeah, ones yeah. that don't and like feel safe. Mm-hmm. A quote that I feel like is really relevant um, from this article, which is by Fleming Sibthorpe and Bammer, uh, 1999 <laughs> says the combination of sexual abuse and a family background marked by alcohol abuse, unpredictability, emotional deprivation, and social isolation shape women's expectations about trust, intimacy, and sexuality. It is difficult for a girl to develop appropriate expectations about her sexuality and her role in loving relationships when she is subjected to exploitation, violence, and the lack of any emotional or social support. 
women's relationship with their fathers play an important role in determining the quality of their relationships later in life. Having an alcoholic father and a father who's uncaring but very controlling increased the odds of having an alcoholic partner living in a relationship that had domestic violence. One thing I wanted to look into was like the very specificity of like sibling sexual abuse, which I think isn't looked into that deeply, but it occurs more frequently than any other form of sexual abuse. And it often happens in like a family, like the one they grew up in where they're like seeing this pattern happen between their parents and like learning from Mm -hmm. it. But like very similar consequences as like I've mentioned before, but it often disrupts like a bunch of different developmental stages when it's happening because it lasts longer. And it builds a lot of like difficulty with peer relationships, confusion about sexuality, aggression, and a very distorted sense of self. Mm. It says that the study found that child survivors of sibling sexual assault have impacts that are uniquely severe. They exhibit the most severe forms of mental distress and antisocial behavior. And they're unlikely to receive professional intervention because they often go unreported. Mm -hmm. And so they carry these issues with them into adulthood and that results in consequences i've already said before mental illness re-victimization in interpersonal relationships just experiencing violence in interpersonal relationships yeah so that's fucked up and it's actually very common in australia much more Mm. common in most places than people think but um, I found uh, an organization whose mission it is to stop and end child sexual abuse in australia and they do it by educating young and older children. They have programs specifically for Aboriginal and Indigenous children, and they also do awareness campaigns and have advocacy support services. And in this like survey that they did, they found that the prevalence is like 20% of women had experienced child sexual abuse, age of onset being under 12 for no. 71% of them. 20, 20%? Mm-hmm. That's a lot. And it was two to three times more likely to happen in girls than... Yeah. Yeah. Usually it was fathers, stepfathers, and other male relatives. Oh. Made up, They made up more than half of the perpetrators for women. This we've talked about before, too, that there's a lot of survivors of abuse that are incarcerated. Mm-hmm. So they found that 70% of incarcerated... 70% of incarcerated people were abused as children, and 80, 85% of incarcerated women in Australia were victims of incest or other forms of abuse. That's consistent with the U.S. also. Yeah. And they, they did a study across 27 correctional centers. So it's a lot of data. Yeah. I'm just like, when are we going to make it our collective responsibility to make sure that survivors have access to healing and also to interrupt really abusive people who just get to wander around being abusive? Yeah. yeah. I, I, I hate it here. <sighs> I hate it here too. I, I really do. So like, it it makes sense that she is the way that she is based on her past experiences. It doesn't justify it by any means, but like you can see just like in many other stories that we've covered, like that there ha- could have been many, many different points of intervention. And there, there were, cause she was in a hospital at one point too, you know, mm-hmm. and she but was it was like- just not taken seriously. It mm-hmm. seems like, mm-hmm. or like people just didn't want to take responsibility for this person and her behavior. So just like, let her roam free. Yeah. And I also, I'm just like, especially in Western communities, there's just like this hyper individualism, mm-hmm, which maybe, mm-hmm. and especially like with the time that she grew up, they probably were just like, oh, she's just a bad kid, you know? Yeah. Or like, that's just how or she she's is. she's like from a hard family. So 
Yeah, or what have you. Like treating it yeah. as like an uh an isolated thing when really there's yeah. just like a there's a lot that culminates yeah. into behaviors like this. Yeah, and I mean you can see like her really violent, aggressive behaviors and controlling behaviors are I I was thinking of undoing. Yeah. Which is like her just trying to like recreate scenarios where she's in control. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, in a really fucked up way and harming a lot of people in the process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, confusing feelings because this child went through a lot of shit. I always think about that when people are really violent um, and like people that later it's just like, what is the point of no return, you know? And yeah. then also. I think it, I think her point of no return was what she's like, a kid. I just think about like well, maybe not. Well, I don't, I don't yeah, know. I'm not, I don't know. I'm unsure, but I I do always think about like wow, this person did this really horrific thing, unimag- unimaginable thing, and I think about how at one point they were like a baby, you know, mm. a toddler, a child, and at like at what point did these behaviors emerge, and at what point could they have been shaped differently? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like we'll never know, really, but. Yeah, I mean, she does unimaginable things because unimaginable things happen to her, and she thinks it's normal. Sure. Sure. You know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. She thinks it's normal. Her baseline's really Yeah, really her baseline's fucked up. Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone in this town's baseline is fucked up, clearly, because, like, no one gave a shit that she, when she started doing this. That's like, even when true. she was at school, nobody gave a shit. That's true. She's, like, out there, here no one's having physical it. altercations. Who else in Aberdeen is behaving oh like, gosh. what the fuck? yeah. Oh, man. Because they act like, when you talk about Aberdeen, they're like, it's a small community of people, and, like, we're just a farming town. I'm like, no, what the fuck is happening over there? Yeah, you're not okay. No, folks are not okay. I'm also thinking a lot about the ACEs study. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know, that might be too long to get into here, but basically it's, like, a series of studies that show... Um, there is a direct link between adverse childhood experiences and um, your, like, obviously emotional and psychological health, but also, like, body health. Mm-hmm. Um, like, over over time, I think if you have, like, ace uh, four or more, five or more, you're, like... So there's a list of adverse childhood experiences, and if you have, like, four or five or more of these um, in a cluster, it's supposed to increase you have like significantly increased risk of like a lot of health conditions and um, addiction issues and, and what have you. And a lot of the time, like I think what wasn't addressed, at least in the ACE study stuff that I've seen is like, I think addiction and they also like talked about overeating or undereating mm-hmm. um, and how, you know, like those things are, they treated it as a problem in and of itself. But I think the realization was like, actually, those were the things that were protecting people. Yeah. Like they were. The rival strategy. Yes. This was like a solution to their issue. And we're treating their solution as the issue itself, like not getting to the root yeah. cause. Like there yeah. are all of these stories, for example, like about people who have a tendency to like eat to the point of discomfort and eat just eat, 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 eat. And they learned that a lot of those people were survivors of abuse at home. And they found that either like when they started gaining weight, they stopped being like pushed around by their stepfather or they stopped being sexually abused. 
Roxanne Gay talks about that in her memoir, mm. Hunger. Yeah. I need to read that. It looks devastating, though. It, it so. is devastating. It is devastating. Anyways. Anyways, on the other side of that, though, when you're talking about social support, there's also a lot of evidence to show that there are a lot of protective factors to ACEs. And so they found that, like, quote unquote, resilient children, people who, like, defy, like, the trajectory of, like, normal correlations. Yeah. Typically had, like, a set of, like protective factors Mm -hmm. that would buffer the ACEs. So like positive childhood experiences were on the other side of that. And it included like supportive, like adults in their lives, even if it's just one. Yeah. I think um, having access to socioeconomic stability was a protective factor. Access to like other resources was a protective factor. There are all of these like things that like help. Yeah. Which I think transitions well to a point where I just want to say like, that when I was doing this research, I was just thinking about my trauma and recovery class and how my instructor was talking to us about how she led a very small group of like older women who were child survivors or who were survivors of child sexual abuse. And she just shared with us how like to witness the healing that happened just for these people who have like kept these stories like inside of them for so long mm-hmm. and didn't feel comfortable sharing was mm-hmm. like really beautiful to witness. And so I did a little googly google because i like to find i like to find positivity somehow when we're talking about such dark shit and i found this um that they did in south africa it was called the survivor to thriver group and it was a group for survivors of child sexual abuse and the outcomes of the group found that the people who are in the group five of whom were black and three were white They found that the group setting was a normalizing environment where they felt free to share their experiences. They felt, quote, witnessed by other survivors. Mm. One person said, my whole perspective and life changed. It was a secret. And then suddenly that lie is gone. I don't have to perform. It's not a race. So I'm just me. And it's so nice. Mm. And then another person said, I think I'm starting to realize that they are at fault in my life and how I'm blaming myself for certain things that I shouldn't. And then there was also a kind of like radical acceptance that was found and people like finding purpose and like spiritual connection that was being part of this group. Mm. So one person said, in the act of helping someone else to find hope, you find meaning. I don't know. It's a mystery. I don't know exactly how to explain exactly how you find that meaning, but you do, Which which I understand. Last quote I'll share from the study is one person said... What I needed to change from victim to survivor, I felt, is personal acceptance, love, and assurance, both from myself as well as others. So, it's totally possible for people to experience beautiful healing in community, as always. I was thinking about our conversation about resilience the other day and how you were like, blah. I don't like this term. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And it was, I was thinking about it because I, uh, in the one other paper that I read, which is called I'm Not a Victim, I'm a Survivor, they talk about resilience, saying some researchers have considered resilience as a personal characteristic or trait, whereas others have viewed it as a state or outcome. These conceptualizations imply that resilience is static or something to achieve and then from which to benefit. However, in this study, participants emphasize resilience as a process. Recovery from trauma, reconceptualization of self, and the development of healthy sexuality included deliberate efforts occurring over time. It required ongoing efforts, including 
both successes and failures with their internal thoughts and emotions, as well as their interactions and relationships with others, Mm. which I liked. Yeah. Resilience as process. I like that. Yeah. You know, I think it's often attributed to people who have a really strong avoidant protective mechanisms when it's like, no, they just haven't felt safe to ever be vulnerable or share. And like that is rewarded because we live under capitalism. Absolutely. Always comes down to capitalism. Always. I mean, even here. Abattoir. Oh, so there's a little bit of light out of all all that dark stuff that I just shared. Mm -hmm. I think that's so, I don't know, tangent. I think a lot about how there's a lot of space, not a lot of space, but when you talk about spaces for survivors, a lot of the times they're crafted for adult survivors Mm -hmm. of intimate partner violence or adult survivors of sexual assault. Mm -hmm. And I think children, like people who experience childhood sexual abuse or childhood domestic violence feel left out of those conversations because when you bring it up, people recoil from them, even people who are making space for adult survivors. So I think it's really powerful that that space existed. And I think there's like a call for more for it, more of it. And I also like, I'm thinking about pleasure activism. There's this essay in there by, um, what's her name? Amita Swadi. Oh yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you're talking. It's, it's incredible, but they're a survivor of childhood sexual abuse and like bring a really beautiful lens to the idea of pleasure activism, which is a book by Adrienne Marie Brown about the politics of feeling good. You know, she talks a lot about like how liberation should be the most pleasurable thing we can experience. So how do we make that so? And so, um, yeah. And then it's a collection of essays and this essay. By yeah. Amita was in there. Yeah, her name's Amita Swadeen. And I actually know this. She has this like website called Mirror Memoirs, which is about people sharing their stories, mm. essentially. Which is very cool. I just really dig the work. Yeah, so she's an educator, storyteller, activist, and consultant dedicated to fighting interpersonal and institutional violence against young people. Mm-hmm. And like through a transformative justice mm-hmm. lens, too, mm-hmm. which I think. Yeah. We just never get that. Yeah. Especially with childhood sexual abuse. People are like... I just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So I was thinking... I was thinking about that. You all should check it out. It's an amazing book. It's an amazing collection of essays. And it also makes me think about, like, you know, anti-violence spaces often are like, let's, like, striving for violence-free lives. And I'm just like, it's really not enough to strive for violence-free lives like we should be striving for really full pleasurable lives yeah like it's not enough to have relationships free of violence we should be That's striving a baseline it's a baseline. That's a baseline you should strive for yeah and so like i'm really all about like having a survivor-centered focus on conversations about sexual liberation because yeah you know like when your baseline is so scary it can feel like you're feel it could feel free to be in a relationship that's simply safe. Mm-hmm. And like, why do we need to settle for s- simple safety? Yeah. So when it's the baseline, that's what I have to say about yeah. that. <laughs> so I guess coming back to Kath, Catherine, Shayna shared about her relationship with her first husband mm. and I'll, I'll take it on a little bit further. And so right after this, 1986, very shortly after she broke up with David number one, 
she meets David number two, David mm. Saunders. He's a 38-year-old local miner. And after just a few months, there, there also isn't information about courting process, nothing. But okay. he moved in with her and her two daughters after just a few months. So I imagine something happened to make that feel like a good decision. The the sense of urgency yeah, in yeah. every abusive relationship yeah, starts yeah. with like, let's just move in together. Right. What's that? So he ended up keeping his apartment, his old apartment, even though he moved in with Catherine, and she became very jealous and suspicious about what he did when she wasn't around, and she often would, like, kick him out of the house and then would, like, go and beg him to come back. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Trigger warning for, like, animal abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, in May of 1987, so about a year later... She slit the throat of his two-month-old puppy. <gasps> no! Are you fucking serious? To no. show him what she was capable of no. if he had an affair. Oh, my God. And then she knocked him unconscious with a frying pan. What's with the frying pans? Um, she claims that the reason why she cut the puppy's throat is because he punched her in the stomach while she was pregnant. But he states that she hurt the puppy to upset him. Either way... Why are you cutting puppy's throat? That's really fucked up. Either way, what the puppy did? Yeah, puppy didn't do anything. But they stayed together after that. That's horrifying. That's horrifying. And had a daughter together after a year. More children? She doesn't need to be having more children. She has a lot already. Oh, my God. They then bought a house together, and she decorated the home with, with animal skins, skulls, horns, and animal traps. So her vibe is abattoir vibe like it's her identity it's very like hannibal lecter i mean people online call her Her the like female female hannibal Hannibal. yeah Mm -hmm. shortly after the birth of their daughter she he left her because she hit him in the face with an iron and then stabbed him with a pair of scissors holy shit when he came back to get his stuff she he found that she had cut up all of his clothes and he became very scared took a service leave from his job, and went into hiding. Went into hiding? Yes. Wow. After a long time, he, uh, after quite a long time, he returned to try to see his daughter and found out that Catherine had told the police that she was afraid of him and had a protection order against him so he couldn't see the daughter anymore. Oh, my God. You know, I just <sighs> want to say... I was going to get into this later, but I just want to say that, like, I think that incel type people will use stories like this to be like look Mm -hmm. feminism is a farce it's a conspiracy just because they hate men um but this is the story that people talk about when they're like oh well women are just out here trying to ruin people's lives yeah like what what about men and i'm just like i'm not saying that men can't be abused they absolutely can but i also am saying like feminism is like at its core about patriarchy and patriarchy is still the devil here. She mm-hmm. was really able to like weaponize the scripts offered to us by patriarchy to obtain a protection order against someone who she was harming. And they just like took that, you know what I mean? So yeah. like we really Even though everyone fucking knows who this person is. Yeah. It's like she still lives in the same town that she grew up in, you know? Like she's not some like new person. Yeah. In a new place where people don't have this information. Yes. <sighs> it's Yeah, so the thing, I mean, the thing that underscores abuse is the power differential. Like, is that one person has power over the other person. You can't have equal 
power and abuse. Mutual abuse is fake and oftentimes is used to criminalize survivors. Like there is a legacy of survivors being arrested and criminalized for their own survival and their own self-defense. And the assumption is that like women of color are the aggressors. Survivedandpunished.com. Check it out. Yes, check it out. Also, it's the same like... I think it's the same uh, assumptions that cause dual arrest in queer relationships Mm, mm -hmm. because people aren't able to – because the police are not – There's also, like, mandated arrest policies when it's about domestic violence, so – which is, like, yeah, that makes people less likely to call you because they don't want that to happen. Mm Mm-hmm. There's so much Ugh, there. So there's much so there. there's so much there. Anyways, any who. <laughs> so after this dude, there wasn't much information about the other person that she dated, but it was her former coworker from the abattoir, and his name was John Chillingworth. They were together for three years. Also had a kid. It was her first son, but nothing more has been reported about that relationship. So like, no violence was like reported. And he left her after he learned that she was having an affair with John Price. And I just think it's funny that she went David, David, and then she went John, John. Yeah, what's that? Yeah. That's someone doing yeah. shit, maybe? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so she was having an affair with John Price. John Chillingworth was like, okay, I'm gonna, gonna go. We'll pass it over to you. Yeah, okay. So, John Price... <laughs> This is the murder marriage, so buckle up, because it's all fucked up. I mean, it's been Buckled. fucked up, but it's going to be really fucked up. Okay. Like, it's a gruesome story. I was able to find information about John Price, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. John Price was born on the 4th of April, 1955. He was the oldest of six children. He had limited education. He left the school. He left school at age 14, so reading and writing is... A challenge for him. However, he was noted to be a very hard worker and he worked in heavy machinery, earth moving equipment, trucking, and mining. He had a marriage before getting into this relationship with a woman named Colleen. They had three children together, a son and two daughters, two daughters, so big family. He split in 1988 after 15 years of marriage, but they remained on like pretty good terms. And he was known as Pricey around town. So he was, like, well-known in community. Hmm. Yeah, so fast forward 1993, John Price meets Catherine at a pub. Par the course for abusive relationships, the beginning of the relationship seemed very okay. John had two older children who lived with him, and they seemed to really like Catherine, actually. And then he he made enough money as a minor, so they were living a pretty comfortable life. And I wonder if, like, part of the reason that it took longer for her to kind of reveal who she really was was because he had more supports available. So it needed, it took longer to break that down. Um, Right. Like he had a good relationship with his kids. Mm -hmm. He made decent money. So he was the one providing like a shelter Mm -hmm. for her. And then like, you know, he was well loved and like he was well, people liked him. Yeah. Yeah. He had support. He had support. He was got along with his neighbors. He got along with his coworkers. He got along with his ex-wife. So there's all these things going on here. And in 1995, which is two years into the relationship, they moved in together. So this, this like rapid mm-hmm. 
this pattern of like rapid relationship movement didn't really happen here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is like weird to me that this is this is that marriage, you know, based on the other people that she has dated. I know. Yeah, who are I'm, very different than y- this. I yeah. mean, don't know about John Chillingworth, but the others. Yeah, well, I mean, I, he might have been like targeted because he was kind mm-hmm. of like noted to be, to be kind of a soft mm-hmm. man and he's Just like yeah i mean i imagine he was easier to control because he was patient mm. but also she had a lot more to lose to by showing that her the abuse side yeah right yep. off the bat right off the bat yeah like she was getting a lot from this dynamic the older kids actually called her nanny kath she was kind to them and so she okay so rachel Biddle, I think her name is, um, one of his daughters said, my kids called her Nanny Kath. She was kind to them and me and sewed beautiful clothing for the kids. So there's this, like, duality. We talk about this all the time, right? Like, abusive relationships aren't all abuse all the time, right? There's a reason Mm -hmm. why people get into them. There's a reason why people stay. There's, Mm -hmm. like, a lot of, like, you know, kind and loving, seemingly kind and loving um, behaviors and dynamics and attributes that people who end up being abusive – balance their behavior with to keep people locked in so you know people are always like how did this get here and it gets there very strategically um, oftentimes like padded by these occasional indulgences which honestly if you haven't listened to the Lorena episode you learn a lot about the dynamics of domestic violence and also the Jim Jones episode mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah there's a trajectory that's like pretty textbook so when she suggested that they get married, he declined. And this is Interesting. when the, yes. And this is when the violence starts. Mm. Right? Like so she's chill because I think she can be like have him under the control. And then once he was like, mm, I don't think we should get married, the violence really begins. So Catherine framed him for stealing a first aid kit, which I think is really weird what? from his job. And he she got him fired. Oh my god. Yeah. Which, I mean, a first aid kit, yeah. first of all. Yeah. Um, so, like, sabotaging his, like, livelihood. Mm-hmm. And so he kicks her out. And, like, a few months later, they start seeing each other. So there's, like, this break mm-hmm. in between, like, she did this. He kicks her out. She's like, okay. A few months later, it's probably like, I'm so sorry. I fucked up. Mm-hmm. da 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 mm-hmm. You know? And, like, he takes her back because this seems like newer behavior. And maybe mm-hmm. he's like... Mm-hmm. He's like, maybe that was a one-time thing. Mm-hmm. She begins to escalate when she wants to move back in, and he says no. So, she, more control being lost. And she continues to insist that he is cheating on her, which is, like, a, a common... Mm. Just It's just a common thing in her behavior, but it's a common thing yeah. also in... Yeah. Yeah. And I was talking about this earlier today, about toxic monogamy and how, like, toxic heteronormativity tied in with like toxic monogamy culture and how it just like it implies an ownership over people's Mm. lives like we like we assume like we identify with our partners in such a way that like we own each other and like like you know like you're mine right yeah and and any attraction outside of that is like a direct threat 
to yeah. what's yours. Yeah. It's like a weird entitlement to body and life. Yeah, super weird. This this morning when I was like in my class, we were talking about relationships and she would like framed it really well. She was like, I really like the word partner because it's like, you know, you're here living your life. This other person is here living their life and you come together in partnership to support each other. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's it. You don't like own this other person. Right. And like you both still have autonomy. Yeah. Like you enrich each other's lives yeah. in a particular way. Mm-hmm. But like, what is this very weird enmeshment that we romanticize? Yeah. I mean, it's in like, it's romanticized in media as well. You know, it's true. It exists it's to like benefit very normal. capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All comes down <laughs> to capitalism. You should you should share about Against the Cup form on one of the episodes. <gasps> yeah. I haven't read that in a while. I should go back and read it. Okay, well stay tuned for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow, what a throwback. Okay, so you know, this escalates very quickly. He's she's like, You're cheating on me. Why don't you want me to like move back in with you? And John starts losing friends because no one wants to be around her. And they've told oh, no. him, yes, yeah, so the isolation piece is very present, mm-hmm. which allows her to escalate further because mm-hmm. he has no social support. Yeah. Um, and they're like, Come on, how are you like letting this woman control your life? Right back Ugh. to mat- like right back to patriarchy and toxic masculinity. <sighs> and like how that's embedded in the mm-hmm. response mm-hmm. you know and uh in february 2000 after all this escalation the isolation there's an argument that escalates probably in circles around the same topics and she tries to stab him in the chest john very quickly tries to pursue a restraining order which is like called i guess the apprehended violence order mm-hmm. in 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 that area against her but she beats him to it so like she knows yeah she's like done it before uh-huh uh-huh and so like he becomes increasingly concerned about his safety and so he tells his coworkers like he she tried to stab me and if i ever went missing it was because she killed me and his boss offers to let him crash at his place and he refuses um, he said that he was, like, scared that uh, if he didn't go home, that something would happen to his children, mm. um, which is really common that, like, threats against family members keep people in abusive relationships, threats against friends, too. It also heightens the isolation piece. Mm. Um, and I also wonder if he didn't want to bring her to the, like, boss's house, you know, which is really common, too. And, like... And she probably saw all this shit happen in her own home. So she's like a, like, seasoned, you know? Like, she's got all of these tactics on lock. February 29th, 2000. After work, he stays out till around 11 p.m. Drinking with his neighbors before coming home. He comes home to find that the kids were sent off to a friend's house for a sleepover. So he's home alone. And then he falls asleep. Catherine lets herself into the house, makes dinner, watches TV, showers, goes upstairs... And wakes John... This is after, like, the restraining order is out. So she's, yeah. like, violating it herself. Yeah. Let's herself in... Like, mm-hmm. breaks into his home, in a sense, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and she wakes him up, like, and is dressed in lingerie. And, like, they have sex. And he goes oh. back to bed. Uh, shortly after, she takes a butcher knife from next to her... From next to the bed. I don't know if she just, like, left a set yeah, there. Yeah. Um, and continuously starts stabbing no. him. 
Yes. Evidence suggests that he woke up during the attack but couldn't fight her off. Yes. Uh, he So he dies from his wounds. Safe to say. And the rest of this is, like, so fucking gruesome. So, like, if that's something you cannot stomach, then maybe fast forward a bit. She uses her abattoir skills to skin him and hung his skin from a meat hook in the living room. She decapitates him and then she cuts him up and cooks him in a dish with potato, pumpkin, beets, zucchini, cabbage, squash, and gravy. I have no words. Yeah. It looks like she makes a dish for herself, but there was half-discarded contents later found at the crime scene, so it suggests she couldn't finish her meal. Go figure. And then Catherine takes a large number of pills. It suggested that maybe she was trying to kill Kill herself. herself. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But instead, she just, like, passed out in the bedroom right next to, like, John's remaining body, which is skinned and mutilated at this point. She's just sleeping next to him. Mm. What the fuck? The next morning, March 1st, 2000, John's co-workers are suspicious. They heed his warning. The neighbor and co-workers show up to check on him after he didn't show up to work without a call, which is really unlike him. And they're extra alarmed because he was like, if I don't, if I disappear, Mm -hmm. it's because she killed me. Yeah. So they were concerned his car was still in the driveway. So they went to knock on the door and they found blood on the door. So they called the police. Mm. They were like, I'm concerned. He didn't show up to work. The car's in the driveway. Looks like there's some blood on the door. And so the police arrive and they still are expecting like, maybe this is just a welfare check. Yeah. You sure. know? Yeah. Maybe he slept through his alarm and everything's fine. Yeah. They are greeted with a very different, different scenario. reality. Yeah. Yes. Um, So they see the blood at the front door, and they peek through the mail slot to get a look. Um, And so they're like, "Mm, yeah, this is really blood. We're going to break in. So they broke into the back door. And Sergeant Graham Furlonger says, as I went in, I saw straight ahead what I thought was bunched up curtains. His partner, Constable Scott Matthews, said there was something hanging that was blocking my entry into the house. I thought it looked like some sort of blanket or some sort of covering no. that had been placed up in the archway. So they have no idea what this is. Yeah, yeah. They think it's Why like, would you think that it's that? I don't. Yeah. Why would you think yeah. it was that? So it's it's blocking the entrance of the hallway. So he reaches to push it aside and he felt something cold. Mm. He realizes that his arm is covered in blood. Initially, he thinks that this is his blood because he's, like, breaking in. He, like, didn't understand, like, what the fuck Mm. is all this blood about. Mm. And then Furlonger says, I realized then that it was, in fact, a human pelt, the skin minus the head, a full skin just hanging from the top of the doorframe. Oh, my God. And they look around. They realize there's just, like, blood trailing along the walls and the floors everywhere. Yow. So they look over to the bedroom and they see the remainder of his body. They said no bot, like no head, skinned, also no genitalia. And I guess like Graham for longer was like, don't look Scotty to his partner. Cause like this is yeah. a small ass town. Yeah. You know, I'm sure that the calls they get are not, mm-hmm. not like this. Not at all. Yeah. This is a completely outside of their yeah. scope of like anything. Anything. So in the kitchen, police find John's head. 
boiling in a <gasps> pot of veggies on the stove. What the actual F? On the table, there are two full plates with meat and veggies. Each of the plates were labeled with a name. And then they realized that one note featured the name of John's son and the other of his youngest daughter. And they realized that Catherine was planning to service John's body to his children. Mm, Wow. The lengths. To service, to serve. My bad. They quickly realized that Catherine was planning to serve John's body to his children. So... They're looking around and they hear snoring. So, like, when they're talking in the interview, they were like, you know, when you're high crisis and and you're scared, you have, like, sensory, like, like, your your sensory stuff is, like, singular. Mm -hmm. So, you might miss sounds and Mm -hmm. stuff. So, Mm -hmm. they kind of, like, kind of pushed himself out of that. And then when he did that, he was like, I hear snoring. And he went to go investigate and they find her passed out snoring in the other room next to the remains. And obviously they try to wake her up and Mm. like they detain her. God damn. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So also they find a little note. I don't know when, I think they probably go back to the crime scene for this note, but it says time got you back, Jonathan, for raping my daughter. You to Beck, which is his daughter for Ross for little John. I don't know what she's saying. Now play with little John's dick, John price. What? This is the little note she left. And like, they found later that like these claims were unfounded, um, around him. Like she's elsewhere. She is elsewhere. Yeah. She, she's yeah. When you were talking about how she had sex with him and then just started stabbing him, I was like, she is not, in in her mind, like, this is not this person. This is, like, someone else. And it's, like, all of her rage mm-hmm. directed to this poor man. And, I, like, obviously, if these claims are false, she, like, literally has, like, delusions mm-hmm. She's that she has projected onto this person. Mm-hmm. Who just... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Super bad luck. Yeah, and, you know, this kind of makes me think of, like... I think it's, like, kind of common that, like, um, survivors who are in psychosis or survivors who are in a state of, like, crisis all the time will, like, their hallucinations are shaped around their trauma. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so they really do believe that they're being raped or they believe that the people in their life are being raped. Like, I experienced this doing DV work. And it's just, like, really sad because, like, I had to tell people – I had to be on the phone with people who I'm like, okay, this doesn't sound – like, people would be like, my abuser is following me, which, totally fair. Like, that could be happening. But then hiring people to follow me, mm-hmm. and I got out of this relationship 15 years ago, and he's still out here following me. They're following me around in, like, cars with tinted windows, and they're going to take me. You know, like, the... Yeah, the, yeah. It turns into, like, this really convoluted, sure. extravagant story where you're yeah. just like, I think that this is not really happening but this is a real reality Mm. for you and Mm -hmm. that's a really scary reality to Mm -hmm. be in this is what this had that letter kind of had me thinking of like it's not uncommon that stuff like that kind of happens and it's really hard because it's like there's a lot of complexity there because i'm like inherently like we believe survivors and also so many other things are happening you know Mm -hmm. like and also those things happen and like where People just, bitches just don't have nuance. Yeah. Can we have that on a t-shirt? 
Bitches don't have nuance. Bitches don't have nuance. But anyways, this is not... This tangent isn't necessarily related to directly Catherine, but this letter had me thinking about that commonality I see. And I just don't know that we have the resources or supports or training to properly handle it. You know? Yeah. That's that. So Catherine reaches full recovery in the hospital. She's sent to a psych hospital. She wakes up and she claims she has no memory of the night before. I have amnesia. And she's swiftly charged with his murder. After the autopsy is done, it showed that he was stabbed 37 times before he was beheaded and skinned, um, that she removed his genitals in that process, and that she had driven into town with his wallet and withdrew $1,000 from his bank account. Money that the police still can't account for to this day. They don't know what the what? fuck she did with that or why she did that. And this is when, like, she goes back and forth between admission and non-admission. Mm-hmm. Because this is where she discloses DV childhood and, like, claims that John was the perpetrator. Which is why I can see, like, in that that novel, him being yeah. like, she's using this to her advantage. And I'm just yeah. like, yes, yeah, she's absolutely yeah. leaning on her shitty childhood to, yeah. to to justify her behavior. And also, she had a shitty childhood. Yeah, and, yeah. And, yeah she's not lying about it. Yeah, you like, know. uh... Yeah. Okay. Nuance. Bitches don't have nuance. Bitches don't have nuance. <laughs> God... Uh. Okay. So the trial finally begins in October of 2001. Uh, The trial does not last very long because she just goes back and forth. She initially pled guilty to manslaughter, which was immediately rejected. Wait, so she did this February of 2001? She did this March of 2000. So the trial- March of 2000. Yeah. Yeah, I was just thinking that it, it's around the same time as Setagaya murders. It is totally the sim- similar timeline as Setagaya murders. I was thinking about that. So, yeah, this happened in March of 2000. Um, she was arraigned in Mar- on March 2nd of 2001, and the trial officially began in October of 2001. So there was some, took some time. The manslaughter thing rejected. The judge offered the 60 jury prospects the option of being excused because of the nature of the photographic evidence, mm. which five of them were like, with, which five yeah. accepted. Yeah. And then when the witness list was read out to the prospect, several more dropped out. Mm. Um, and then the jury was yeah. put together. Yeah. They say that, like, she was, like, no affect, no reaction to the details, except for when they recounted the skinning and decapitation piece. And then all of a sudden she, like, breaks down in, mm. um, like, an intense explosive scene, which I'm not sure what to make of that. Yeah. But then... Catherine changes her plea to guilty, and then judges adjourn the case without testimony. So, mm. something that I like, something that the the judge said kind of stuck out to me. Said that she was small, unimpressive. No one would notice her in a room. And I'm just like, there's really something about that. There's really something about the assumption of her innocence because they're like, oh, just an everyday person, which is not like grace that will be given to anybody fucking else. 
And um, I also wonder, like, how this ties into, like, the toxic masculinity that was surrounding John and, like, her exes and, like, the community's response to that being, like this cannot be happening to you. You're weak for accepting it. So I, I looked up like what people were saying about like domestic violence and hetero relationships where the man is abused. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Actually, this is on Wikipedia. It was like a collection of like information. And, and they said that societal and gender marriage expectations were relevant in these discrepancies. Many judges and newspaper articles joke that men subjected to IPV were weak, pitiful and effeminate. Men beaten by their wives were seen as so unmanly that they did not deserve society's care or protection. Men will go out of... So, like, for me, I'm, like, noticing, like, men will go out of their way to uphold, defend, and benefit from patriarchy without realizing that patriarchy Mm. is ready to discard of them the moment that they depart from the notions of what real men ought to be. This is reminding me of genderist trauma and how gender is Mm. traumatic for everyone in different ways. So, I went to this webinar called genderist trauma that was about how gender norms and the gender binary and how they're oppressively imposed on like everyone are traumatic so like here we're seeing the way in which like societal norms in connected to toxic masculinity can be harmful and even deadly towards men who fit a different like role than what is expected from them mm-hmm. and like the, the webinar goes on to say how like a, a lot of different things and how the gender binary stems from colonialism mm-hmm. but yeah there's a book actually that you can click uh, check out it's called gender trauma and it's written by the person who led this webinar their name is alex ian toffee so Gender trauma, healing, cultural, social, and historical gender trauma. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. You're welcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this shit totally goes back to colonialism, like everything else. I'm just like imperialism in and of itself is inherently patriarchal. Mm-hmm. And so patriarchal violence is always used in colonial pursuits. And yeah. we see the way that that just like permeates over and over and over again in different like areas yeah. of modern life. Mm-hmm. Anyways. But, you know, bitches have no nuance. So, Barry O'Keefe, the judge, he also said that he has never before or since struck something of the horrific nature of Catherine Mary Knight's case. And he noted her lack of remorse and continued threat she posed to society. And he said, this was an appalling crime almost beyond contemplation in a civilized society, which... I noted, like, it's wild to me that white people have the audacity to always fall back on how their societies are quote-unquote civilized. Like, this bitch didn't happen in a vacuum, like I said. Like, we say. Yeah. Like, what is the role of colonial violence, which always includes patriarchal violence in creating the conditions that allow for this shit to happen? Yeah, and we at least know that this violence goes back to, like, her grandma and probably further than that. So it's it's not, like... Oh, shocking. You know? Yeah, like, why do you think this has nothing to do with you? Yeah. And your ancestors and your community. Like, what? Bye. Anyways. <laughs> Anyways. Anyways. So they gave her a psyche eval and they considered her quote unquote sane, which is interesting, but they diagnosed her with borderline personality disorder, which I'm going to get to because it's an opportunity to talk about borderline personality disorder. Same psychiatrist probably who said that. People who experience sexual abuse as children can never forget it. 
Right. I'm just thinking about how often that's weaponized by, like, uh, so I used to go do medical advocacy when people were getting their rape kits done. And oftentimes the state of shock and trauma causes people to not remember what has happened to them or the details of what has happened to them. And the police were so fucking horrible when they were like, what do you mean you don't remember? Remember?" And would ask them really wild, detailed questions mm. about what they were wearing, where they were, what was the color of like, I don't know, the bed, what was the color of the carpet? Who it's were like, you I with? I can't even remember Who was that driving shit the car- for a mutual experience. Um, just like why and then they'll use it to dismiss the case yeah and i just like also want to reiterate that like less than two percent of all like sexual assault cases see a courtroom and there's like rape kit backlog it's just like fucking wild i cannot anyways i'm i'm tangenting bring it back bringing it back so Catherine's legal team had planned to defend her by claiming amnesia and dissociation though um a claim supported by most psychiatrists although they did consider her sane and then the two mm-hmm. psychiatrists concluded that that she suffered from borderline personality mm-hmm. disorder mm-hmm. so let's talk about that because i think borderline is unjustly covered and stigmatized like tons of people have borderline and are not out here being abusive scary assholes like you know like borderline personality disorder can show up in a lot of different ways and also like it just happens to be the lens through which she executed abuse you know yeah it's not the cause and when i was talking to lit shout out to liz liz our friend um (laughs) also therapist also therapist i talked to her about like you know i think all personality quote-unquote personality disorders are rooted in trauma i really do and i think like the tendency towards certain ones might be genetic but the development of them is rooted in trauma 100 like complex trauma and so she was talking about like yeah it's more like a personality structure than a disorder Mm. and it really is like an adaptation to cope with an ongoing traumatic situation. Yeah. Oftentimes people who have complex PTSD are diagnosed with borderline personality disorder because complex trauma is something that's quote unquote new. Yeah. And I, I don't, I don't like how, I mean, this is true for all mental disorders, disorders that are in the DSM where like, the blame is always shifted to the individual of like, there is something wrong with you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not this is a response to trauma on an interpersonal or societal level, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which I think all mental health issues are responses to trauma. That's true. Yeah. I, like I, combined with other things mm-hmm. like genetic predisposition, but you know, people don't just like, you know, your, your brain's, trying to do something (laughs) your brain's trying to do something so i have some stuff on borderlines personality disorder um and framing it as like a really like a form of complex trauma response as opposed to reducing it to a pathology Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and i found this article that is from the conversation.com and it's based in australia i believe so Borderline personality disorder as a diagnosis is strikingly common in Australia, affecting what between 1% and 4% of all Australians, which numerically is a high number of people, and also is consistent with the data you pulled earlier about how yeah. high sexual abuse, yep. like how high the rates of yep. sexual abuse are. Um, 
I hate it. Yep. I hate it. Also, I want to say BPD is overdiagnosed or underdiagnosed in men. Mm-hmm. And overdiagnosed, like, we definitely, like, it's a gendered personality disorder and it's, like, a feminized personality disorder. Yep. This article talks about it, like, loosely being characterized by emotional dysregulation and unstable sense of self, difficulty forming relationships, and repeated self-harming behaviors. Um, Most people who suffer from BPD have a history of major trauma, often sustained in childhood. This includes sexual and physical abuse, extreme neglect, and separation from parents and loved ones. This link with trauma, particularly physical and sexual abuse, has been studied extensively and has been shown to be near ubiquitous in patients with BPD. People with BPD who have a history of serious abuse have poorer outcomes than the few who don't and are more likely to self-harm and attempt suicide. Around 75% of BPD patients attempt suicide at some point in their life. One in 10 eventually take their own life. That is Wow, that's so a wild statistic. That's really high. High. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of these behaviors are rooted in shame mm-hmm. and like living in shame and wanting to not mm-hmm. face that shame. Mm-hmm. And the DSM-5 does not mention trauma as a diagnostic factor in BPD, despite the inextricable link between BPD and the trauma. The DSM-5 is, I mean, the DSM, not just the DSM-5, is just bullshit. It is just bullshit. Like, I talked about this very briefly in the previous episode, but what is this prolonged grief disorder? I'm like, <laughs> you just keep adding things that make no sense at all. For the purposes of money. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, right? Like, insurance only, mm-hmm. like, covers therapy for different kinds of, like... Like, I know on Medicaid, it's, like, really hard to get ongoing therapy if you don't fall within, like, yep. DSM criteria. Yep. And so, in adding that to the DSM, more people are falling into criteria and more people mm. are able to get care. But yeah. what, how about we just, like, fucking flip over the whole system because yeah. we should not be profiting off of people suffering. Yeah, and people shouldn't be only able to access therapy if they're going through a hard time. Like, Why do we have to wait for crisis? Yeah, prevention's great. You know... When I switched therapists at one point, when I moved to Seattle, I immediately was like, I should find a therapist now because I'm doing fine and I'm going to be happy when I'm not doing fine because I know that's going to happen, that I have a therapist. And lo and behold, was very happy when random crisis situation came up, like pandemic. So Yeah. Also, like, it's really hard to, like, organize your thoughts and find a therapist when you're in crisis mode. Yep. Yep. It's hard enough when you're not in crisis mode. Yeah. It is really hard to find mm-hmm. accessible, affordable therapy. And affirming therapy by people who, like, have identities that represent you, like, that is, like, so fucking hard. Anyways. So this this article continues to say the similarities between complex PTSD and BPD are numerous. Patients with both conditions have difficulty regulating their emotions, they experience persistent feelings of emptiness, shame, and guilt, and they have significantly elevated risk of suicide. And the next they're like talking about why the label is harmful. Labeling people with BPD as having a personality disorder can exacerbate their poor self-esteem, personality disorder in quotes translates in many people's minds as a personality flaw and this can lead to or exacerbate an ingrained sense of worthlessness and self-loathing this means people with bpd may view themselves more negatively but can also lead other people including those closest to them to do the same 
So it says also that clinicians, too, often harbor negative attitudes towards people with BPD, viewing them as manipulative or unwilling to help themselves because they can be hard to deal with and maybe not engage with initial treatment. Doctors, nurses, and other staff members often react with frustration or contempt. These attitudes are much less frequently seen from clinicians working with people suffering Mm -hmm. from complex PTSD or other trauma spectrum disorders. Um, because they're looking at it as like this is a you, you have a personality flaw, you yeah. have a mood flaw, yeah. as opposed to like this is who you became as a response to an ongoing situation that you should have never been put in to begin with. This is just to say like people, people really like slap this like diagnosis on and put it on people's charts and then people treat them accordingly. Yeah. When really like the root of it is trauma and the root of it is like really having like incredibly low self-worth because people have routinely told them or proved to them that 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 self-belief is like true. Fucked. Yeah, fucked. So this article says other symptoms of the disorder include identity disturbances, feeling dead inside, quote unquote, rage responses or difficulty regulating emotional reactions to situations, mood swings, constant anxiety, panic, poor self-esteem, memory blanks, dissociation, out of body or feeling unreal experiences and problems with concentration, feeling invalid and fear of being abandoned. Like that just like, I mean, how does that not impact your entire way of like being in the world? It also says rage or diffuse anger or diffuse anger is another symptom of BPD that's poorly tolerated by family and health professionals. If the person with the condition repeats self-harming behavior, frustration among family, friends, and health professionals increases Mm. and may lead to decreased care. Since people with the (sighs) disorder crave reassurance that they are worthy, valid, and deserving of care, this rejection sets up a dangerous spiral of increasingly harmful behavior that's intended to attract care. Mm. So it reminds me of like Brene Brown, <laughs> you know, when she, I dig that bitch. I know that there are other people who do shame research that have been overshadowed by the fact that she's a white woman who gets a lot of attention for it. And also this is helpful info. She talks about how being in shame um, causes people to engage in more behaviors that exacerbate that shame. Yeah, because being in shame, like shame versus guilt, guilt is like, okay, I did this bad thing. Shame is like, I am bad. And so if you have that belief, then you can literally do whatever you want to, like, reinforce that. Whereas, like, feeling of guilt is more likely to lead towards doing things of taking accountability because you still believe that, like, you still have your self-worth intact even though you may have done something, you know? Yeah. And in that way, shame is, like, really debilitating because you get stuck in it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And my personal experience with people in my life who have borderline, some I think I don't want to diagnose, but I think undiagnosed and some who are have been like diagnosed by proxy, like sure. friends going to therapists and the therapist saying, I mm. think this family member has, I think sure. you're right. Sure. I think a lot of like my, those interactions are to me seem to be rooted in, in a lot of shame because they can't receive I think shame makes accountability really impossible. And so it's really hard for people to have space for these like behavior patterns, especially when there's like no addressing, like, uh, like unhealed and untreated. Like I'm talking about like when people have no self-awareness of like these patterns Mm. happening for them. I really, I really do think that when they receive negative feedback or even just like constructive feedback, they immediately internalize that as you're telling me that I'm bad and I already believe I'm bad and everyone has told me that I'm bad and I grew up in an environment where I was treated like I was bad. 
Mm. And like there's, so there's nothing constructive that can be done with that information because it's always filtered through the lens of like, oh, you're telling me that I did this thing that was hurtful. I'm just hurtful. I'm just bad. Which that's is, just me. Yeah, that's just me, which is a total barrier to like taking accountability because if you can't, di- like if you can't untangle the, the your beha- identity, your identity from, from the, the behavior, behavior. Yeah. then there's really like, it's really hard to do something with mm-hmm. that. And yeah, the, diagnosis of borderline personality disorder and everything that comes with it kind of just reinforces that just like the opposite of what you're trying to do yeah when you like figure something out about someone yeah it's supposed to be helpful not make it worse yeah and i not not to say that everyone who has a diagnosis of it like experiences I understand that some people, when they get certain diagnoses it like really validates their their life experience mm-hmm. There is a nuance there also. Yeah. I mean, nothing is like, One nothing is uniform. Other. Yeah. Um, this is just a pattern, not a, not a one size fits all. Yeah. And like, on the other hand, like I can see how someone on the receiving end of that, um, that could be really hard. Like I, that's, that's real too. Yeah. But I also just wish we had more spaciousness and nuance um, to address some of these behaviors and patterns as not a personality flaw, like not an inherent flaw, but something that somebody did or there's something that their body and brain did to adapt to a really fucked up situation. They also say that the rage of uh, people who have BPD, which often occurs in response to apparently small issues from the outside, may actually be um, a delayed expression of anger with the perpetrator who abused them. And then Which we were just talking about. Right. And then their memory blanks out. Their memory blanks and then an out-of-body responses to stress may be attempts to repress rec- recollections of mm. that abuse and escape from that trauma. And then they go on to say, like, not all trauma stem from physical or sexual abuse. Emotional neglect or deprivation can also be difficult for people who identify to identify and define they can nonetheless leave a mark for years to come. About 10 to 20% of people who have borderline have not reported history of childhood trauma. So, I mean, that could be like a... For a multitude of reasons. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of Mm -hmm. reasons people don't report or don't seek care or like simply just don't Don't, fucking remember. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, that being said, you know, there's a lot more that goes into that, which we don't really have time to unravel i just wanted to note that like it's really reductive to just say someone who has bpd is prone to all these terrible behaviors and they're manipulative mm-hmm. and da 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 mm-hmm. and therefore and like Catherine, she just has bpd and i'm just mm-hmm. like there's so much that's missing from that mm-hmm. narrative and you know there are like quote-unquote treatments for it dialectical behavioral therapy yeah. was created and with bpd in mind yeah marcia linehan has bpd yes yeah. created by someone who has bpd yeah she's um, from u-dub is she really yeah look psychology researcher at university of washington wow well she describes dialectical behavioral therapy as a synthesis or integration of opposites DBT was designed to help people increase their emotional and cognitive regulation by learning about the triggers that lead to reactive states and helping to assess which coping skills to apply in a sequence of events, thoughts, feelings, and behaviors to help avoid undesired reactions. So like the integration of opposites piece, I think is important because Mm. people with BPD often experience a lot of black and white thinking. Mm -hmm. And I think we also live in a society that like, perpetuates black and white thinking binary thinking which 
does connect back to like this binary way we like mm-hmm. we're talking about like gender a second mm-hmm. ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think DBT directly responds to like society's desire to like have things be either or when really like many things can be true at the yeah. same time. Yeah. And like when you're able to have like high dialectical self-views, meaning that you can honor that there are many parts of your identity that can coexist and don't negate one another. Yeah. Like that has like positive multitudes. Yes. DBT is helpful for a lot of people. Like DBT skills can be helpful for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Anywho. Anywho is it. Back to Catherine. Sorry. She was diagnosed with borderline PD. She was escorted to prison that day. And like we said earlier, she became the first woman in Australian history to be given a life sentence without parole. I read a 2021 article that says that st- this case still haunts cop- the cops that came there to I mean, this day. No yeah, one of them said I couldn't eat meat for three months after, which I mean, just three months? Yeah. Bro. To this day, Catherine falls back on insisting her innocence and refuses responsibility. She can't accept that she did that. And then in June of 2006, she even tried to appeal the life sentence, saying that the penalty of life in prison without possibility of parole is too severe for the crime. Oh, man. What kind of world do you live in? Catherine, where are you? She's elsewhere. She's elsewhere. This bitch is elsewhere. She is still alive, serving at Silverwater Women's Correctional Center. She's 66 now, or at least this article said she was 66. I don't know if it gets... Maybe it was a year ago or something. Mm-hmm. Whatever. She's mm-hmm. in her 60s now. She's a white. She has white-haired and bespeckled, and her nickname, the Nana, oh belies the horrific nature of her crimes, this article what said. What the heck? Yeah. So according to James Phelps, who wrote Green is the New Black, Catherine spends her time knitting, painting, and helping other incarcerated women sort out their disputes. Conflict resolution, Catherine! She has... Explain. She has, like, structural dissociation. <laughs> Wow, that's so specific and correct. Yeah. Yes. Like, maybe the person, the reason why she switches back and forth is because there is a part of her that really truly believes that she didn't do that. Maybe. And then there's a part of her that's like, yeah, I did that. Mm. And, like, she was like this when she was in school, too. That's true. Do you think she's got split person? Yes. Do you think she's got DID? I feel like she totally could have DID. Because DID is a response to trauma. Yeah, yeah it is. You can't, you can't integrate. So yeah. your body creates different, like... Yeah. Different, yeah, parts, essentially. There's some wild research that shows, like, people with DID have, like, different chemical structures when they're in different states. So maybe one personality mm. does have PPD. Yeah. And maybe one personality does not. Yeah. I'm not sure. This is all to say that I think DID is also wrongfully stigmatized. Yeah, yeah. like all, all these freaking movies. <sighs> It's not correlated with violence. She just happens to be violent. Yeah. And people are bored, I guess, with the everyday, the everyday people who have these diagnoses um, and don't act this way. Yeah. So she helps just like sort out disputes. She, not surprisingly, like she doesn't really get visited in prison, but reportedly she has found religion. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. 
of course. Like, I don't know. That's such a common thing. Yeah, it's not religion. But also, like, the way that she's just, like, knitting and shit kind of reminds me of George Bush painting cats to, like, hide oh, from his yeah. past of being a war criminal. Yeah. You know? Like, he was like, I really am responsible for the death of so many people. Mm-hmm. And now all he does is paint cat paintings. Wild. Look at me. Um, I'm just a gentle old man. Man. With cat paintings. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it feels it feels like mm-hmm. it gives the same energy. Yeah. So I didn't want to end on like a somber, somber note. It's all fucked up. So I I did look up to see like what's like John's family up to, and they actually have a Facebook page in his memory called John Charles Thomas Price, aka Pricey's memorial page, and they still post every year on his birthday. Oh. Someone wrote, "Not a day goes by." You're not in our thoughts. Your kids have grown into gorgeous young adults and making you proud. Love and miss you every day, Pricey. Kids always talk of their uncle and the funny times we had. Love always slim in the kids. And then they have a heart and like four beer emojis. Uh, there's a lot of beer in these emojis. I guess they like go yeah, to like the yeah, pub, pub that they used yeah. to hang out at. We'll be sure to have a stubby for you tomorrow night and throw on the lawn. I don't know what that means. Throw up on the lawn. I have, no I, idea. I have no idea. It's some Australian slang <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's beyond me. Yeah, sure. Someone's from Australia. Please tell us what a stubby is and what throwing a stubby lawn means. maybe is a beer. That's a my st- guess based st- on the emojis, but based on the emojis, yeah. Another person said, "Shay and I had a drink for you as we do every year. R.I.P. Buddy, taken way too soon. You live on in your three amazing, Aww. beautiful children." They also post photos of each other, like, at the pub, being, like, in memory. Yeah. So, you know, he's being honored yeah. by his, like... Community. Um, yeah. Which, I mean, something horrible happens. Like, we talked about traumatic grief mm-hmm. in the Richard episode, and um, people people think that there's no possible way to heal from that, and, like, I think it's true that that trauma stays forever, but, like, it goes to show that, like, having community is a really healing thing over and over and over People are remembering him for who he was and not for what happened to him. So shout shout well, out to him. Yeah. Well, that's that, I guess. Uh, a light episode. Light episode. Wow. Very light. Light and airy fairy. Oh my god. We really did that. Okay. We did. Well, we did. Hope you take care of yourselves. <laughs> Remember, as always, watch something funny. I don't know. Do something, go outside, scream into a pillow. Enjoy the sunshine if there's sunshine for you. Yep. Mm. Do something. Don't look into this further. I mean, you can. I'm not going to control your life, but take care of yourself. I mean, we told you everything you need to know. Yeah, that's true. That's true. you know, if you've got that morbid curiosity and you want to hurt yourself, like I do. Which, yeah. Okay. Well, that's a wrap. Thanks for listening. Peace out. Yeah. See you in the next one. As per usual, Patreon starts at $2 a month and it's like a little tip Yay. if you would like to contribute. Um, the $10 tier gets you a sticker. The $20 tier gets you a mug. mug. And also your money. 50% of that money goes to causes related to the stuff we talk about, you know? Yay. And then visit our website, unpackingtheerie.com. Check it out. Cool. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening and for supporting us. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Unpacking the Eerie, on Twitter at Unpack the Eerie, 
and on our website at www.unpackingtheerie.com. Yes, and special thanks to all of you who subscribe to our Patreon. As we've mentioned before, we do all the research for this, we edit, and we don't have any sponsorships or ads. Um, So Patreon support is super helpful in just keeping this project sustainable, keeping the Buzzsprout subscription going, paying for the website, all the stuff. So thank you so much. Sari, Liz, Clifton, Jill, Victoria, and Lindsay, Lauren, Vivian, Valerie, Micheline, Montana, Katrina, Raina, Ali, Jake, Driti, Daphne, and Katie, Vern, Meredith H, and Vince, to April, Aaron, and Ellen, and to Brittany, Alyssa, and Meredith R. Yay, thank you so much. Thank you.